This is Lawrence. And Bruno. And welcome to Cybersecurity Talks, the interview podcast for cybersecurity professionals and for those who aspire to become one. My name is Laura and with me is my co-host Bruno Weinborg. Together we interview industry experts and explore what it's like to work in the cybersecurity domain. Join us on our journey and listen to our bi-weekly episodes and learn about the latest trends, real-life war stories, and everything you need to know about this fascinating industry. Welcome back to another episode of Cybersecurity Talks. We're very proud and grateful to have Melanie Rebeck in our studio today. Melanie is the founder and CEO of Radically Open Security, which is the world's first not-for-profit computer security company. Besides running this company with over 40 professionals, she's also the CEO of the world's first incubator for post-growth not-for-profit startups. Melanie is also a former assistant professor of computer science at the Vrije Universiteit of Amsterdam and is the author of multiple famous academic publications. She was named Most Innovative IT Leader of the Netherlands by CEO Magazine in 2017 and one of the nine most innovative women in the European Union in 2019. She's recognized as one of the 400 most successful women in the Netherlands by FIFA Magazine in 2010 and 2017. And one of the 50 most inspiring women in tech in 2016, 17 and 2019. In 2016, the Dutch Chamber of Commerce named Melanie's company Radically Open Security, the 50th most innovative small to medium-sized company of the Netherlands. Melanie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. When I read out all these uh, impressive milestones, how does it make you feel? Um, I don't know, uncomfortable. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, these are great selling points, but it's always a little awkward when you hear these things about yourself. <laughs> but yeah. I don't know. I, I'm a female, so <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but it's so impressive. Yeah, well, I, I, I appreciate it. that. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> And we always start the show with some uh, standardized questions. So mm -hmm. I would like to ask you these questions as well. Sure. What you need to know about me. What meal do you start your day with? Oh, gosh. It depends on the day, really. I mean, I think uh, it just, yeah. I, I think we've got a standard collection of either uh, muesli or pancakes or, uh, yeah, just random i don't know just bread you know <laughs> just depending on the day and how the, busy the we Dutch are style. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> android or ios android what's your favorite phone app app um canine mail working from home office or a mix uh my home is my office are you a gamer no laptop desktop server or vm um I would say laptop, server, and VM. <laughs> there we go. What's the guilty pleasure of yours? Being on podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Cloud or on-prem? On-prem. First word that comes to mind when I say cybersecurity? My career. <laughs> nice. And your password is? Uh, don't you want to know? <laughs> <laughs> This is Radically Open Security. Can you, uh, as a starter, explain a bit more about uh, Radically Open Security and what the company stands for? Sure. So Radically Open Security is a social enterprise in the security consultancy space. 
Uh, we have been around for seven and a half years. So we have roughly 40 people uh, that are working with us. We've had, I would say, well over 150 customers by this time, including uh, Google, uh, Mozilla, um, Wikimedia Foundation, the European Commission, uh, <laughs> Dutch Ministry of Health, uh, you know, but also just lots of different sectors um, SCADA and Energy, so Tenet and Ego stayed in, but also, you know, Egon and HEMA and Triados and, you know, but also universities and SMEs, startups, and especially not-for-profits because we do not-for-profit not work at cost price and a zero-margin basis for nonprofits, NGOs, and civil society. So um, when I say we're a social enterprise, another thing that's uh, unique about us is that we give 90% of our profits to charity. <laughs> wow. Yes. So uh, we have a bit of an odd business model called a fiscal fundraising institution, FFI, um, and it's a kind of yeah, fiscal construction from the Dutch church. Sometimes a church wants to do a commercial spinoff, so it will, um, yeah, do something commercial, raise some money, and that money goes with a tax benefit back to the church. A famous example of this is the Language Institute, Regina Chaley, uh, otherwise known in Dutch as uh, the Nonnen van Vught, yeah, <laughs> the Nuns yeah, of Vught. Yeah. Um, the Nuns started the Language Institute, and that cash goes back to the Nuns uh, again. So we basically stole that construction, but we decided to make our commercial spinoff, a cybersecurity company, and our so-called church, the NLNet Foundation. And that's a, um, yeah, a, uh, how do I say, uh, they give subsidies, <laughs> so basically to any open source projects, but also digital rights initiatives, basically anything for a better open and transparent internet. Uh, they've been around for about 25 years. So we have so far uh, donated and we, we're making our uh, 2020 donation right now because we're closing out uh, that book year. Uh, we're, yeah, basically after this donation, we will have donated close to a, uh, three quarters of a million euros to NLNet. Wow. Yes. That's amazing. Yes. So cool. And this was just seven and a half years ago when you, you founded the company or the CEO. Yes. And what was the idea to start sort of a non-for-profit cybersecurity company this was bound breaking back then yeah i thought that the security consultancy industry is way too commercial um, a lot of the market leaders they're either tied in with intelligence agencies or they're oftentimes things like the big four it's not so much that there's anything wrong with them as much as i just think that not every hacker wants to work for such an employer uh, because hackers are idealistic oftentimes, uh, very similarly to people in the open source community. There, you know, there's a lot of overlap. And uh, I think that um, also my problem was the lack of uh, openness in, uh, in process. I was working in the uh, CSIRT team, the cybersecurity um, uh, team at ING Bank, um, and we were dealing with some of these vendors and I was like, okay, so I'm the you know chief researcher at the, of uh, at ING Bank and on the cyber on the cybercrime team. I would really like to learn what you're doing because if you're so lead, you know, then I'm sure you have a whole lot to teach me. But they uh, didn't really seem eager uh, to share their knowledge. <laughs> they uh, you know uh, threw away uh, batch history logs and worked in screen and forgot to turn on logging, even though I reminded them to repeatedly. Eventually, I just physically 
stood next to them and looked over their shoulder because that was the only way that they couldn't get rid of me. <laughs> you know, and of course they were using the same open source tools as everyone, but they didn't want you to know that because, you know, they wanted to convince you that hacking is some kind of black magic and that it's hard and that you need them. You know, and it's logical why they're doing this because, you know, they're trying to get, uh, yeah, job certainty basically, you know, by uh, getting customers hooked. But truthfully speaking, from the customer's point of view, this is really terrible value for money. I mean, of course, security is a, a mindset. Security is a process. And if you're not actually sharing what you're doing, then of course, as a customer, you're not optimally going to be able to learn, which means you're far worse equipped to be able to, you know, prevent yourself from making the same mistakes the next time around. So, you know, th that was around the time when I decided, you know, I think I can actually do far more <laughs> and have far greater impact uh, by starting my own company. And then that's exactly what I did. Yeah, amazing. And these 40 professionals, are they mainly then ethical hackers or is it a wide variety of, of cybersecurity professionals? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a mix. I mean, the majority of my team members are uh, ethical hackers. Uh, we also have a lot of support functions. So we have uh, an IT and infrastructure team. We have a project management team. We also have some people in business and finance. We have graphic designers. You know, uh, I also do a lot of business development uh, as well. So, you know, I mean, we're running a company. So in that sense, uh, but, but the majority of our team, of course, is uh, ethical hackers. Yeah. Now for me, I know how difficult it is to find ethical hackers. Do you feel it's a bit easier because you are a social enterprise and you mentioned ethical hackers do it also for a reason? How is that for you? Is it difficult to attract these talents? Yeah, so I think it's easier for me than it is for a lot of other people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because uh, ethics has a very strong market value. <laughs> and especially when you're recruiting, uh, if cybersecurity professionals know that they can do exactly the same work for more or less exactly the same uh, compensation, but they can do it, you know, in the right ways for the right reasons, you know, with the right motivations. Also, you know, with a more open and, you know, more openness and transparency in process and really being able to help the customers and, and being able to share it's really hard, I think, for the com more commercial companies to compete with this. <laughs> and that's basically it. So, you know, we have grown considerably, <laughs> you know, I, I think very quickly, you know, and given the fact that growth is not even one of our uh, targets, you know, I mean, it's, it's all been organic growth because of, you know, just maintaining a happy ecosystem, <laughs> you know, I mean, people like to um, be open and transparent in how they're working. And they're proud of the fact that we're giving these donations to NLNet every year. So, I mean, of course, you know, hackers don't grow on trees. So, you know, I mean, of course, we would always love to to have more hackers. And, you know, we're always, uh, we're always hiring. But at the same time, though, I mean, we have managed to, uh, to keep it together. And all in all, I still think we have it a lot easier than uh, many other companies. The Beginnings the last time we spoke, you, I think you started your career in biology, or at least this was your first study. Can you take us back to the early days? You're a, a U.S. citizen, mm -hmm. but uh, now we're doing this podcast here in Amsterdam in the Netherlands. Where where does the interest in the uh, cyber security world start? Well, 
It started really from my childhood. I mean, I'm one of those proverbial geeks who started programming when I was seven. You know, I mean, if you remember, like, Logo with the Turtle and things like that, and, you know, GW Basic, you know. <laughs> the early days. <laughs> the early days. I mean, my parents worked uh, at Bell Labs uh, back in the day. And, uh, you know, we had, uh, you know, an 8088 at home with a 300 baud modem, you know, and a green and black monitor. And, uh, you know, so I really started as a, as a kid uh, learning about computers and technologies. Then I dialed into uh, bulletin board systems, uh, you know, via the uh, local dial-in from our uh, public library. So uh, that, that was really my first exposure. Um, I didn't immediately get started in security because at that time, I didn't really see any way to do it legally. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I knew a lot of people that were sort of, I knew some people that were doing illegal hacking, but you know, I'm, I wanted to be a good girl. So I, you know, I stayed away from that. Someone well, what said, was I, it, uh, what was it like? Do you have some land parties where you knew people were already fooling around a little bit? These were, in, this was long before land parties. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, this was just more, you know, in the days where, uh, I mean, we didn't even have bandwidths uh, fast enough then, you know, to, to run games, <laughs> you know, with, with that kind of bandwidth. So uh, you're a pioneer in the industry. <laughs> Well, no, I mean, I just think anybody, it's more that I'm old. <laughs> you know, I think everybody in my age group who's been in here long enough, you know, started uh, started this way. You know, and hell, I mean, my my mother, I mean, she was a C programmer. She started on, on PDPs with punch cards. So, I mean, you know, she wins, you know, <laughs> so I'm not even as old school as, uh, as some other people. But um, anyhow, but the point was that, uh, you know, I that was my first exposure really to hacking. There were all these, you know, text files that were going around. And it was back in the days when you had, a, a, you know, the blue boxes and, and the orange book and, and all this stuff. And, you know, it was really interesting. And I, I read a lot about it. But again, I, I I didn't want to get in trouble. So I just really focused on programming. So I was, you know, coding up like little stupid text adventure games. But, you know, uh, it wasn't really until uh, I got uh, older, uh, once I started uh, my uh, my master's degree, that I actually saw the very first pathway to actually really explore uh, cybersecurity legally. <laughs> and then you made up your mind because you did two studies at the same time, I think, in biology and then also uh, in computer science. Yeah, exactly. So I started uh, indeed as a pre-medical student at the University of Miami, just quite simply because I had no idea what I wanted to do. And uh, I think my parents said I had to be either a doctor or a lawyer, and I knew I didn't want to be a lawyer, so I okay. chose for pre-med. Um, but yeah, but part, part of the way through my first year of that biology study, I uh, took a computer science class uh, as part of the core curriculum, and I realized that, hey, this is fun. I'd like to do more of this. That was when I added uh, basically uh, a second major, so in uh, computer science, and I uh, graduated my bachelor's uh, with a double major in biology and computer science. Of course, the natural thing that leads to is bioinformatics. Yep. So I did my uh, my senior, uh, you know, thesis project uh, in bioinformatics on uh, molecular modeling. Um, <laughs> And uh, I also had a summer internship also at a company, company called uh, Compugen, uh, where they were also doing some proteonomics. Uh, so I also worked in that. Uh, immediately after graduation, I wasn't really sure what to do because all of my friends were going off to medical school, but uh, it didn't really feel right to me. So I took a year off. And I worked um, for a year on the Human Genome Project. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. 
So I got a job uh, at MIT. This was in the period of time around 2001, 2002, when there was a race, a genome race uh, going on between the public and the private sector. So uh, I was a, a part of the uh, public uh, consortium. Of course, the private uh, consortium was uh, led by Craig Venter with Celera Genomics. Yeah. And I was actually part of a very, very large team that produced the very first uh, paper in uh, in Nature uh, with the initial sequencing of the uh, human genome. Oh, that's yeah. amazing. <laughs> but this was really a groundbreaking project that you were working on. I think it was covered all across the world. Yeah. What were mm -hmm. next steps for you? Did you get entertained? Because eventually you did step away from uh, this field and go into cybersecurity. What triggered you? Yeah. So, um, you know, in bioinformatics, I mean, there's really two sides of it. I mean, you have the uh, more yeah, statistical, mathematical uh, modeling aspects, uh, and you also have uh, the computer science. And I was just far more interested in uh, computer systems. So at a certain point, I just decided to um, take a step back away from the biology and really just to focus on the, the computer science side of things. So that was when I decided to move uh, to the Netherlands. Uh, I did my uh, master's degree at the uh, Technical University of Delft. And that was when I uh, really decided that just to, to do the master's in uh, computer science and to specialize in uh, cybersecurity. But how was it? Um, for your friends uh, and, and maybe also your family, you're working on one of the most influential projects on MIT. And then <laughs> you say, okay, I'm, I'm stepping out. I'm going to the Netherlands yeah. to a rather unknown place called Delft. What, what was that like? <laughs> <laughs> Were people happy for you <laughs> thinking she got crazy? Yeah. No, I mean, to quote my parents, uh, they told me, uh, you are committing career suicide. Yeah, that's almost how it feels. <laughs> But here we are today. <laughs> Yeah. You know, I parents love you. I mean, well, most parents <laughs> do anyway. And, you know, they're, they're just, they care, you know, and they're worried. And sometimes they can't always, you know, I mean, honestly, I, I just really wanted to go to Europe, <laughs> you know, and I had no idea how it was going to turn out. So, I mean, it, it most certainly wasn't a career move, you know, for me to move to, to Europe. It was just more that, you know, I was a, a young 20 something and I felt like there was so much more life to have, <laughs> uh, you know, and I, I followed that. And I think, again, wh wherever you go, you can find opportunities. And, and furthermore, you know, if you're really enjoying yourself, <laughs> you know, if you're following your interests and your passions, I mean, that will lead to opportunities. And I also don't think that life is, uh, is linear. Like you can really plan everything in advance. I mean, you can try, but I don't think it's going to necessarily lead you to the best des destination. Yeah. I, I think you made a couple big, bold decisions in, in your career. Would you say this was the, the biggest transition moving away from the U.S. and then going to Delft University? Um, well, I mean, of course, leaving your country of origin <laughs> is always a big thing. Yeah. Um, you know, but to me, I mean, it, it was an adventure and it felt like, uh, you know, a, a long holiday. I mean, well, 20 years later, my holiday <laughs> still isn't over. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, but I've, of course, I've, I've made many more, you know, <laughs> bold decisions, I suppose. I mean, you know, I mean, even just if it were, you know, leaving ING Bank uh, to, you know, with, with a permanent contract and a very good set 
salary to, to start my own uh, cybersecurity company. I mean, we all occasionally go out on a limb and do things that are a little bit risky. Yeah. Uh, sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. But, you know, I'm a firm believer in trying things. I fail sometimes too. In fact, I fail a lot. <laughs> you know, but the thing is, if you try often enough, <laughs> you know, a certain percentage of what you try will succeed. And yeah. that, that's the main secret. Would you em embrace failure or even seek failure? Recently, I, I heard another podcast and somebody said, I, I seek for failure. So it, it's good to fail from time to time because if everything's a success, like, like have you pushed hard enough? And I thought yeah, that that's actually very true. Mm -hmm. And it's also, I think from your biggest failures, you probably learn the most. So if you can set aside your ego and actually tell people, I failed again, mm -hmm. maybe that's actually very powerful and you're aligned with your ego. Right. Um, look, I accept failure. I certainly don't seek it out. <laughs> <laughs> That's <a> dangerous. <laughs> you know, I mean, failure is hard <laughs> anyway. I mean, failure is also sometimes inevitable. But I mean, I think those who would go so far as to say, well, I seek out failure, you know, I mean, they're, they're busy trying to, to, you know, move fast and break things. But the thing is, it's not healthy to deliberately break things. <laughs> When something breaks, uh, you're hurting people, <laughs> you know, and you're needlessly squandering resources. So, you know, in that sense, I mean, I don't think that we should be punitive with those who make a genuine effort To, to do something and who then fail. I mean, of course, out of that failure comes growth and comes learning. But I also think that, uh, you know, just being a, a total cowboy <laughs> and yeah. being capricious about other people's resources and uh, just being cavalier and, and not caring whether you succeed or fail. I mean, that is not an attitude that I would uh, encourage. The RFID virus. And do you have a favorite failure for yourself? A favorite failure? Um... Well, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that any failures are my favorite, but... <laughs> Sometimes I, I, it puts you in the right direction after a couple of years, and then during that time you don't realize it, and then later on you discover, hey, this, what happened to me had to happen, so I'm happy where I am now at, but if I wouldn't have failed that particular thing, maybe I wouldn't have been on that level where I'm at now. Yeah, uh, of course. I mean, uh, you know, fr from failures, I've had growth. <laughs> and from that growth, I mean, it's put me on the path uh, where I needed to go. So, I mean, while I certainly don't look back fondly on any of those times <laughs> when I failed, uh, you know, I mean, it's like, for example, when I was trying to valorize my um, PhD research, I created this system called the RFID Guardian. It was basically a man in the middle uh, slash firewall device for R between RFID tags and RFID readers. Um, you know, I won several best paper awards with the research that I did. Uh, I got also quite a bit of uh, news coverage <laughs> also uh, for the work that I did. I went on quite a long speaking tour. Because the RFID is uh, similar to when you leave a store. And, and you have that white button on your clothes, then the alarm goes off, right, if you leave the building. Yeah, it's sort of like that, but uh, but a bit smarter. So they, uh, they're they powered <laughs> the same way uh, through an inductive coupling, uh, but they uh, are a bit closer to the reading devices. Uh, and they're also, they, they with the microcontrollers, they nowadays are capable of doing a little bit more crypto. So they're, they're basically uh, remotely yeah. powered computers. Yeah. And that publication got really, really famous, huh? 
Yeah, I, uh, well, I, I published uh, a paper about the so-called uh, RFID virus, and that was, uh, yeah, I, t I titled that paper, um, Is Your Cat Infected with a Computer Virus? <laughs> <laughs> okay. And it was, uh, you know, this was back in uh, 2006, uh, so yeah, I mean... <laughs> I'm, da I'm dating myself somewhat now. But uh, the point was, at that time, nobody yet had demonstrated uh, malware uh, for these kinds of radio tags. So I basically did the first uh, proof of concept of uh, a SQL injection, and then also showed how you could, um, but also some buffer overflows and other kinds of script injection, and showed how you could use that to uh, infect a system and then replicate that original um, infection back to new tags that would appear, hence the RFID virus. Um the news uh, went a bit crazy <laughs> with it. Uh, and they also, uh, you know, they tend to play the telephone game, <laughs> honestly. I'd, I'd put out a press release that wound up getting picked up by John Markoff uh, from the New York Times. <laughs> nice. Uh, and then from there, it just exploded. And, and of course, uh, you know, what journalists basically take that article, copy it, modify something, then somebody else takes that article, copies it, modifies something. And eventually, of course, the craziest articles are like completely like yeah. <laughs> not related to, <laughs> to reality at yeah. all. So, but um, yeah, I mean, it was uh, in, uh, yeah, it was, it was in the front page uh, of the Volkskrant. Uh, oh. It was also, uh, you know, uh, I think it was like page seven of New York Times, but it was, it was really all over the place. I mean, uh, basically uh, Reuters uh, picked it up and it was uh, in hundreds of, uh, yeah, newspapers. So, so what, I mean, what, I, I received... What happened the days after this publication? What what was your life looking like? Did, did a lot of things change? A lot of phone calls, a lot of companies reaching out? Yeah. You know, I, I got like 200 emails the very first day uh, after I published that paper. And uh, yeah, in the in the months preceding, you know, I mean, I got everything from like, you know, marriage proposals to death threats. <laughs> okay. I mean... I, it's one, a wide one, range yeah, of emails. I, one antivirus company put out literally a two-page ad trying to debunk my research. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's when you know you've made it. And, uh, you know, I mean, even even the chief privacy officer at the time from Philips uh, looked me in the eye and said, your research is bad for my company. I... And that's when you know you're re you've really made it. So <laughs> was that a success for you, or you thought I, I need to be careful now? Well, I'm not afraid of, of Phillips. I mean, you know, hey, look. I mean, you know, we're we're, we're all industry professionals. So I mean, it's yeah. perfectly fine. Everyone can have their opinions. And, and look, I mean, we have roles that we play. And as you know, in academia, it is our role, you know, to be sort of that annoying mosquito. You know that uh, occasionally. You know, it's the same thing also with. Uh, at the time, you know, Bart Jacobson and his team at uh, in Nijmegen, I mean, they were also doing the same thing. And uh, also they managed to do the very first uh, crack of uh, My Fair Classic. And yeah, I mean, it's just, it, yeah, it, it's it's a cat-mouse game, but it's a, it's a you know, but at least game. we're doing it openly and we're doing it on the right side of things. So, I mean, it's annoying, but people, I think, also understand that it's uh, necessary. Yeah. And just for our listeners, because... We sort of left off uh, the moment that you went to Delft University, you mm -hmm. did your master's there, you graduated, and then you uh, decided to do a PhD. Is, is that the right order of things? Yeah. So uh, indeed, after uh, after I graduated from the TU Delft, I uh, wound up getting an offer that I couldn't refuse from Andrew Tannenbaum, um, who is you know wrote several textbooks and he uh, invented uh, Minix. Yep. 
which is the uh, predecessor to Linux. Linux. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> yeah. He reached out. Yeah. No, no, I, I reached out to him. Okay. But yeah, it was it was it was quite funny actually because I originally reached out to him because I wanted to do uh, a project in uh, intrus- intrusion detection. Um, but the funny thing was, I had uh, <laughs> this is a funny story. I'd uh, I'd sent him my CV, and uh, when I was at University of Miami, I won this scholarship called the uh, Barry M. Goldwater Scholarship, which was basically a scholarship for math and science uh, and engineering. However, uh, Andy is a very, very staunch Democrat. <laughs> and of course, Barry Goldwater is a Republic, <laughs> Republican okay. senator. So he thought at first that I had won a scholarship for being Republican. <laughs> and I got a one-line email back from him saying, a Goldwater girl, not my cup of tea. <laughs> that's, so I, uh, <laughs> that's rude. Well, I sent him an email back saying, you know, look, you know, if you're just going to judge <laughs> not me what it looks you know, like. <laughs> based upon this, then, you know, I also got a, a PhD offer from the Theo Delft and I'll have the best PhD ever there. And, you know, I wish you a good life. Yeah. <laughs> he, he, he wrote me a mail back, uh, basically apologizing <laughs> and then inviting me into, uh, to come and talk to him. And of course uh, he discovered well after the fact that I most certainly am not a Republican. Yeah. So, <laughs> but, uh, anyway, but the point is that, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, he, he was actually really, uh, I think, the best boss I've ever had, you know, and he is to this day, I mean, still one of my heroes. I mean, he he still, you know, is, is my mentor, you know, in yeah. many ways. He really taught me almost everything that I know about how to, uh, you know, find a good research problem, how to, uh, you know, do... Research the literature to fund a project, to assemble the team, to project manage the work, to uh, you know put out publications and deliverables, and how, you know how to do PR for that. And yeah. it's just you know almost every skill that I learned from him about leading a research team at a university, of course, was also um, useful also for being an entrepreneur and starting a company. Are you proud of yourself? Is there something specific that you learned from him that you now apply? Since you're now a CEO of a company, two companies actually, is there one specific takeaway that you think I I picked it up from him? The thing that really touches me most with Andy is really his energy and his passion. I mean, he had more energy than most of his 30-year-old students. I mean, at 3 a.m. he was helping me edit research papers the night before the deadline. So, I mean, just, just the way that he is, I mean, was always inspiring but, you know, he also had a number of practical tips, too. I mean, of course, I learned very much about operating systems and computer science uh, from him, even just like little tips and tricks, like uh, like little things, like like how to say no. It's quite important. <laughs> yeah. I mean, as an entrepreneur, it's a, it's hard. And, you know, certainly as a female, it's also even more hard. <laughs> I mean, I don't like saying no. I don't think very many people do. But he had this tip. He basically said, create a folder in your inbox. And anytime you are invited to do something that you actually would rather not do, basically, just, uh, you know, reply to that person, politely thank them, say that you're not interested and then take that email and then put it into the no folder. Okay. And then over time, watch the size of that folder as it grows and feel proud of yourself because that is the amount of time that you freed up to spend on the things that matter. Yeah. That's a very, very good tip. But for you, you have two companies, successful companies. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you, how do you 
juggle between these two jobs and also still have a, a nice and healthy private life? Is, <laughs> is this then the, the main takeaway that this is really useful? Yeah. Um, I mean, my worker life and my private life are a bit intertwined, <laughs> you know, and also the work that I do also to a certain extent is also my hobby. I mean, certainly what I'm doing with nonprofit ventures and post-growth entrepreneurship, I mean, this is this is my hobby. <laughs> this is your life. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, that being said, of course, I also need time off. You know, I, I do rigor rigorously try to protect my evenings and weekends. Um, I do try to uh, to get out of the house. Uh, I do try and, you know, to stay physically active and to get some exercise. Um, so, I mean, I, I really believe that uh, taking care of yourself uh, physically has a huge impact also on your, your mental health. And, and you need that time off because the problem is overwork is not sustainable. I mean, life is a, is a marathon. It's It's not... You know, it's not a sprint. And and there are things I could have pulled off in my 20s that, you know, now as somebody who's, you know, in my early 40s, I just, I can't do it anymore. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, as you've you... achieved so much already. <laughs> Right, it's it's incredible your your journey. Yeah, but you know, but nowadays it's easier for me because I mean I have a large team. So I mean, you know, a huge portion of what I do, you know, has been well accomplished together with other people. <laughs> yeah, you know, and it's 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 a lot easier to get things done. For example, when you have a company with forty people working in it, <laughs> I mean, it's not to say that I take credit for everybody else's work. Of course, you know, credit <laughs> you know needs to be shared, and and you need to give credit where credit is due. But at the same time, you know, all of the successes of my individual staff members are, are also my success. And, and similarly with the incubator that we're, we're creating now, I mean, the success of the startups in my incubator, you know, is, is yeah. also the success of my program. So it's not to say that I'm the, you know, I mean, they're the ones doing it. Absolutely. But, uh, yeah. but, you know, but working with other people is, is a multiplier. And, you know, in, in, in that sense, I mean, I'm definitely by now a very experienced uh, technical project manager, <laughs> you know, and I, I believe that that is really how I manage to accomplish as much as I do. It's, it's not because I'm superhuman and because I spend so much time working, but it's rather just because I know how to assemble teams of people. I know how to finance it, you know, and, yeah. and I know how to coordinate it. And ultimately, you know, there are big results because there's such a big team involved yeah are, are you very proud of where you're standing now in life because i know i was asked this question myself recently and also in a group of other entrepreneurs and nobody was really proud they said yeah i'm, I'm, I'm happy i feel yeah i'm sort of okay but nobody was like yeah no i'm, I'm super super proud where i'm at right now and uh, this is exactly where i should be do you f feel that way or is this just ingrained in the human brain that we're always like yeah yeah indeed it's nice but also in the beginning when i read all your achievements if i could read out that for myself i would be super proud probably but maybe you're always looking for the next thing like the brain is never really satisfied or never super proud how right how do you feel I mean, I am proud <laughs> with what I've managed to do, you know, and, 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 and heck, I mean, you know, even, even, even my parents who thought I'd committed career suicide, I mean, by now they're, they're proud of me too. So, I mean, you know, once your parents are proud of you, then you have to be proud, right? But no, but, um, but the, the thing is, look, there, there's always more than that you can do, you know, I mean, and the human brain indeed is conditioned to never enough and that's unhealthy, yeah. <laughs> right? You know, I could, of course I could, I could compare myself to people who have more, I mean, you know, 
know, whatever. I'm not, you know, I'm not Tim Ferriss and I'm not Oprah and I'm not, you know, (laughs) if whatever. I mean, of course you can compare yourself to other people, but that's just, you know, comparing like that is just going to make you unhappy. I mean, I think that I've managed to create a path that is very uniquely my own. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And it's very well suited for me. And, you know, I mean, I think my mom, you know, used to say for a long time that you you just don't want to have a real job. And she was right. (laughs) You know, I mean, and that's why being an entrepreneur is really well suited for me because, you know, I I don't want a real job. I mean, I want the kind of job that I can create, that I can only create for myself, you know? (laughs) And, you know, as a result, you know, I have a job, but I also have a life that that's very diverse <laughs> and yep. that's very interesting. I mean, I spend part of my time on uh, pen testing and cybersecurity. I spend another part of my time on, you know, social business models and, you know, also looking into, to, you know, play, you know, <laughs> run, running incubators and things like this. I mean, anytime I want to spend time on something, I'm able to. I have such an incredible amount of freedom <laughs> as an entrepreneur and certainly as as being, you know, director, you know, CEO of my own companies. So I'm very grateful, you know, for for the place where I'm at. And even if radically open security for whatever reason, like let's say tomorrow we have a data breach and the company goes belly up, I, I have confidence in my skills, <laughs> you know, that I would still be even be able to create something else. You yeah. know, I mean, of course, I hope that such a thing wouldn't happen. Uh, I mean, every everyone has a data breach at some point. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, that's so how just, you deal with it. That, yeah. that, that's what it is these days. Thank, thank goodness we haven't yet. But but nonetheless, I mean, but but the point is that, you know, at this point, I have enough confidence and I have enough successes and I have enough skills that, I mean, I know how to start things. I'm good at starting things and running teams and I could use that for almost anything, you know. And, and on top of that, I mean, at least up until the pandemic, I mean, you know, the amount of travel, you know, that uh, that I've been doing. I mean, I used to travel probably, you know, maybe once every two months or once a month, you know, depending. Uh, I didn't want to travel more than because then you have no home life anymore. But, you know, I, my life is just really interesting, <laughs> you know, to it, me. It sounds, it sounds amazing. <laughs> the wrong profit motive. Would you also feel you need to have a business to make such an impact? Because otherwise, it may be hard to organize people. But if you do it from a business, maybe you have a more powerful stick to use. Well, look, I mean, I think there's many tools, you know, and there's many places we can be standing. And I think everyone can have an impact from wherever they are. I mean, I think academics play one role, you know, and it's a very important role. I think also politicians, you know, from where they're standing can also have a tremendously large impact, you know, in um, both both culturally, but also in, in creating laws. I mean, I think that, of course, business people, you know, entrepreneurs, of course, can can have a large influence in creating organizations and, and shaping their culture. But even people that are just employees, you know, that are just doing the everyday work. I mean, everyone has choices, you know, and in, in, in daily operations, I mean, everyone has choices about, you know, whether they're going to, you know, do things because it benefits stakeholders rather than just doing it because they think they need to impress management. You know, everyone can take their own responsibility from where they're standing. I mean, of course, people in the nonprofit sector and NGOs, I mean, that's yet another set of roles that that you can play. So I don't like to say that any one thing is more important than the other, but I think rather it's just we all we all play our part. And, and I think you need all the different pieces to work together. Uh, to really get where we're going. Yeah, I, I fully agree. I'm thinking 
how I can incorporate it for my business. But but I don't have the the answer yet. Well, you know, I I think about business. I mean, the place where it typically goes wrong is in the profit motive. <laughs> yeah. You know, because uh, in trying to maximize for profits, we make decisions uh, that sometimes aren't so great, you know, for for people, for society, for the environment. Uh, you know, as, as we say, it's sort of we are uh, externalizing uh, the costs, you know, whether that's environmental pollution or social inequality. Um, I think if you can remove the profit motive from business, <laughs> yeah. then I think that it really changes the entire incentive structure. And I, I believe that this incentive structure is what governs the decision-making. It's not to say that you're going to have a perfect business. I mean, no no business is perfect. Anytime you get enough people together, I mean, there's going to be things that are weird. I mean, that's just humans. <laughs> but, uh, but I do think, though, that the structural perverse incentivization is gone, <laughs> you know, and, and people can at least then trying to focus on together, really just trying to achieve, you know, a real social objective. And this can permeate the culture from top to bottom. And this is, I think, where social enterprise sometimes gets it wrong, because they talk about the triple bottom line. I mean, people, planet, profit. But Mohammed Yunus, you know, the Nobel Prize winning economist from Bangladesh, he says, you know, when people and planet are in conflict with profit, Profit always wins, <laughs> yep. you know, and it's just a question of, of degree, you know, does it win a little or does it win a lot? But really, I mean, if you completely remove, <laughs> you know, the, the profit from a business, then people and planet really is, is all that's left. But of course, then people start to get confused because they think, wait a minute, but how can you have no profit? How can you run a company if there's no yeah. profit? And this is, the word profit itself is is problematic. Because we don't understand this, but the word profit has a double meaning. Okay, please, please elaborate. Yeah, so the first meaning of the word profit is reinvestment. <laughs> so in other words, uh, you know, if I sell you a product or a service, uh, I put a margin on top of that and I can take that margin and I can reinvest that back into my business, you know, yeah. and I can use that to pay for IT or automation or process or people or, you know, just any, any kind of thing that I need to create a, a, an organization that is stable. <laughs> Without that reinvestment, you just simply cannot build a business. But the second meaning of the word profit is extraction. In other words, like, it, you know, this this is the money that's going to pay for my Lamborghini and my private jet. I yeah, mean, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. And, and this is completely inessential. That's the that's dark side of profit in a way. <laughs> that's it. You know, and, and not only is it completely unhelpful, but it's also even detrimental to the business. I mean, businesses leaking cash, I mean, that is not good for the business because the money that you extract from yeah. a business is is money, is cash that you cannot use for putting, for, for R&D to create better products and services, or, or alternatively lowering the price for your customers, or maybe paying your staff better. I mean, extraction yeah. from your company is a financial, it's a disadvantage. And it's also the inequality that comes from the distraction. So maybe some people are able to distract more because they're higher up in the company. So that can also create friction. 
This is it. And this financial extraction, this is what creates the 1%. But there are ways that we can remove, you know, this extraction from business, you know, and just being cognizant of this double meaning of the word profit. I mean, this is the system, right? You know, I mean, we complain about the system, (laughs) you know, uh, and, and we, we, we know that all these effects, you know, are coming from the system. It's like, you know, extinction rebellion says it's, you know, it's a system change, not climate change, (laughs) right? Because it's, it's originating from the system, but just understanding that extraction and reinvestment is embedded in the same world. It's so deep, you know, as our semantics that we cannot, we cannot, Take, separate these two concepts in our head, <laughs> yeah. you know, because they've both been embedded in the same world. Word, this is the system, and that's why we need to move away from things like the word profit and instead, you know, talk about you know reinvest reinvestment and extraction, you know, and separate these concepts out. Um, you know, so the it also the, the this double meaning of the word profit it makes it equally confusing when you start talking about anything not for profit. <laughs> You know, because yep. when people say, okay, we're a not-for-profit, then instantly they think, oh, but then that means I'm not allowed to have a business model, or it means that I'm not allowed to, to reinvest. But that that's completely wrong. <laughs> because what you're trying to do is, you know, any NGO still needs to kind of run itself as a business to be financially sustainable. So it needs a business model, and it needs to reinvest to build a stable platform. But what it needs to be removed is that financial extraction. <laughs> yeah. And, and you can achieve this by using um, not-for-profit business models, things like, for example, uh, foundation ownership of companies where 100% of the company is owned by a foundation. You can use it by um, things like steward ownership, (laughs) uh, in which you are uh, essentially creating constructions where your company is cannot be sold. I mean, there's legal belts and braces to prevent the entrepreneur from, from having an exit, <laughs> you know, whether yep. you're using golden shares or you're using boards. I mean, there's, there's different ways to implement it. But, uh, you know, also other tools like cross-subsidizing charity, I mean, similar to what, uh, what Radically Open Security is doing. And, and that's the thing. If we can pull, you know, this – profit motive entirely out using these not-for-profit business constructions, you know, even you, you know, with your cybersecurity recruiting company, you could, if you wanted to, you know, create a foundation and sell your shares, you know, for one euro to the foundation that you'd think, oh, that's crazy. But that's exactly what I did, you know, with Radically Open Security. And I'm not the only one. I mean, (laughs) yeah, yeah. I'm going to be honest that I've so far reinvested almost every penny. I'm not living a luxurious life, and I think I, I never will. But to be honest, I must say at some point, I think I was thinking of sort of a cash out or in 10, 20 years, I, I might sell. And then I was looking on sort of the dark side of, of profit to mm-hmm. extract. But when you say this, I, I'm really mesmerized by how you put it. it it's, it's very interesting to make that distinction and I also feel now you already have this business, you have two business. Mm-hmm. And I want to ask you at the end of the show for what, what's, what's going to be next for you. But I think I already feel mm-hmm. uh, besides cybersecurity, you're also very, very passionate uh, about having this not then not for profit because that's not the right way to put it. Mm-hmm. But to, to do something good and, and support people to set up or change their mindset to 
have businesses that are actually not looking for the extraction, but actually to reinvest and reinvent and build things together nicely. Yes. Yeah, it's very powerful. I'm, I'm sitting opposite <laughs> of a very inspiring and then very happy woman. I, I, I think you you really have a good shot of, of making this happen on a re- really bigger scale. And that's also with the incubator program. I think that's where you really want to make an impact and a difference. Eh? Can you explain a bit more about this uh, incubator program? Because it's very closely related to to what we just discussed. Yes. I mean, you know, I, I hope that I can have an impact, but the best that I can do is just take baby steps, you know, and I also understand I can't do everything myself. This is precisely the reason why, you know, I uh, have an incubator. It's because I realize I can't do all this work myself. So what rather what I need to do is I need to tr- to spread the word and the message and I need to train other people. And even with the incubator, you know, I am writing up, you know, everything that I'm doing, you know, I'm, I'm gradually releasing more and more of it into the open source. You know, we need to train the trainers, right? Yeah. Because, you know, I also do not scale <laughs> and I also must not be the, the center of all of this. I mean, the, the point is, you know, it's really about ideas and it's really about knowledge and understanding and this is really what I'm trying to do with the incubator and also generally in, in getting the word out. People do not understand the harm that our startup ecosystem is causing. <laughs> okay, what, what do you mean with that, the harm that it's causing? I think that, uh, you know, t- looking at, at big tech, <laughs> you know, and, and the problems that we have, I, you know, about a month ago, I was actually at the uh, first chamber of parliament at the, the Erstekam or the Dutch Senate, uh, talking with the senators about the problems with AI. Yeah, it was coincidentally on the same day uh, that Francis Hagen, you know, the uh, Facebook whistleblower was also testifying in the U.S. Senate about exactly the same thing. And I explained, you know, to the uh, to the senators that, you know, I've spent the last, uh, you know, 20 years of my life as a security professional developing privacy enhancing technologies, (laughs) you know, and at a certain point, I started getting very frustrated because I started to feel like I am developing technological band-aids for business model problems. Okay. Yep. And, and and it's very ineffective. I mean, the reason why Facebook is the way that it is, is because its business model, you know, says, you know, that our data is, is the new oil, you know, yeah. you know, we are not going to be able to solve these problems uh, until we change these business models. And that was when I really came to the conclusion that if I really want to fight these really large problems, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm done for right now with building technological band-aids and you need to fight business models with business models. Yep. <laughs> and, and that's exactly what I'm trying right now. If you look at a company like Facebook, one of the problems is that Mark Zuckerberg is completely unaccountable to anyone. Yeah, I, I can relate. Yeah. Yeah, no, he can almost do what he wants in a way. Yeah. I mean, he's very, yeah, very powerful, and, and even the the stake and shareholders they they would follow him. 
it, it's not that they follow him. It's that the, the shareholders can do nothing. Yeah. Because yeah. the problem is yeah. the problem with Facebook is they have these super voting constructions. So Mark Zuckerberg, there's basically A class shares and B class shares. Mark Zuckerberg has these special shares that have ten votes for every one vote that people like you and me have. So the pro, you know, at one point, uh, an activist uh, investment company, Trillion Asset Management, they attempted to file a shareholder res- resolution at the Facebook AGM, changing that system, making it one share, one vote, right? But the problem here is that Mark Zuckerberg, he has thirty five percent of the shares, but he has sixty percent of the votes. Oh, so wow. he single handedly voted down this shareholder resolution, and he can always do this. He can always do this. Ouch. That's that's going to be problematic, yeah. Right. And the problem is this kind of shareholder uh, super voting construction, this is becoming more and more omnipresent <laughs> in uh, in Silicon Valley. I mean, <laughs> when we were sitting right now, it, you know, in a WeWork, <laughs> you know, I, I had to sort of chuckle when we uh, when we when we came in here, because of course, uh, this is sort of one of the proverbial, <laughs> you know, companies for for Silicon Valley misbehavior. I mean, the whole reason why Adam Neumann, <laughs> you know, uh, got in trouble, you know, and, and why so many people scrutinized uh, his... Uh, the, the walls the, are listening here, but okay. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Please be I, I careful. <laughs> I hope everybody's listening. <laughs> <laughs> but the point is, people scrutinize their IPO paperwork so much, in part because he was trying to introduce such a such a, a super voting construction, and you know, and they they were asking, you know, do you really need, <laughs> you know, you're already sort of this dictator. Do you all do you even need even more power, you know, over this company? And first of all, I mean, we we can ask questions about whether or not these super voting constructions should even be legal. I mean, (laughs) but of course, remember, this stuff is, it came from somewhere. It came from years of corporate lobbying. We're not going to undo it anytime soon either, which is why I don't believe in politics solving our problem. If anything, with all the populism nowadays, if you look just at how much worse it has gotten in the last four years during Trump's tenure, I have no faith that politics is going to solve this for us. Yep. <laughs> I mean, pardon my pe- pessimism, but I think that we as entrepreneurs and we as people and we as civil society, we need to do it. Yep. <laughs> maybe you know, if we lead the way, po- politics maybe will eventually follow. But I do, I do not believe that we can count on it. Even Boris Johnson now in the UK is busy writing new privacy laws, you know, post Brexit to weaken the privacy protections, you know, that that the oh UK once had uh, with GDPR. So things are moving in the wrong direction, not in the right direction. Three tips for founders. Would you agree that the 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 tech companies have had a big impact on our lives, say the last ten years. If 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 we now look around in public transport or just in households where everybody's sitting behind a laptop or being in social media, I think this change is more rapidly evolving than maybe the yeah the the, the infrastructure section uh, section or uh, agriculture. There, of course, also things move very fast. But I think on the day-to-day life, the tech companies really have had a big impact on our lives. And I wonder, and I'm even a little bit skeptical, what what our lives look uh, in 10 or 20 years and also for the younger generation. Because I do believe that the tech companies will have a major impact, whether we like it or not. Because there are brilliant people working there in these tech companies. But right. I'm not sure if they 
have the same mindset as you and if they have the same business models they incorporate. So what side on the profit scale yeah. are they? What are they seeking? Yeah. I think as technologists, we need to really think about the role that we are playing. And the responsibility you, you can have or, or must have, maybe. Yes. Look, we work in the cybersecurity field, you and I. <laughs> and you and I also both know, certainly as a, as a recruiting company on your side, you know how hard it is to find good ethical hackers yeah. or in general just to f find good cybersecurity professionals. Here's the thing. We vote with our feet for the world we want to live in. We can make the decision to work for a large corporation, <laughs> or we can decide to work for a social enterprise or for a smaller player or a more grassroots or a more, you know, smaller boutique player. You, you can even decide to take your own responsibility and start your own. <laughs> yeah. You know, we can do this, <laughs> but most techies, you know, are in general, you know, if you look at students in a computer science program, the definition of success is to land a job at one of the tech giants. Yeah, I see it still today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and I think we can be a little bit more creative than this, <laughs> you know, because there are people who work at these tech giants, you know, like Frances Hagen, <laughs> you know, and, and she, uh, you know, is an expert in algorithms. It's not like there aren't enough techies in these companies that, that have enough savvy understanding of technology that they can't figure out how to, you know, solve the problem. But the problem is they don't have the mandate to do so <laughs> to the point that, I mean, it's obvious that there's no escalation path for these problems. You know, they, they, they are choosing, you know, these algorithms that optimize for quote unquote, meaningful social interactions, AKA, you know, promoting the most div divisive and controversial <laughs> and hateful content. Yeah. Uh, you know, they are doing this for the sake of their business model. It's not because they, they can't figure out some better algorithm <laughs> you know, that would be better for society. But there, if there was an escalation path within the company, she, you know, she would not have decided that her best course of action was to take a stack of documents and walk to the Wall Street Journal. Yeah. So there is change. Yeah. Well, yeah, but it sh this change shouldn't have to come from whistleblowers. And the fact of the matter is, you know, people also are leaving these tech companies. <laughs> you don't have to work for these tech giants. You know, we can take our own individual responsibility to either find more socially responsible companies or if those socially responsible companies are not available, to start them ourselves. You know, because again, we, you know, without the staff, the company can't function. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and, and that is the thing. As an individual, we do have so much power because we choose where we can apply our labor, <laughs> you know, and where we apply our labor it directly influences what kind of a world you can get. If you don't like the impact that the big four <laughs> is having on the world, then why on earth do you want to work for them? Yeah. I mean, no offense, you know, because of course there's a lot of really wonderful people I know who work for the big four. And I know also equal numbers of people who at a certain point get tired of it, you know, and then leave for something else. And I understand also for people who are junior, you know, they're trying to make a start in their career and they want to find yeah. all this out for themselves. <laughs> Maybe you don't think about these things at, at that age. You're just too focused on getting your your first big name on, on your CV. Yeah. That's it. But you're not taught this in school. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, uh, you have a very powerful, very powerful and important message. 
would this also be your main driver for the next five, ten years? That that uh, yeah, you're you're a very famous and influential person. You speak at the Eerste Kamer, so that you also have a platform around you where you can spread the message. And I can see you're very passionate about this. What what would you like to achieve the next five or or ten years? Well. You know, I, I, I'm not really a believer in predicting things too far into the future, because if you had asked me 10 years ago where I would be, I certainly wouldn't have said that I would be where I'm at now. Um, all the same, I, you know, I hope that uh, I will continue working towards positive social impact. But I'm going to follow my curiosity. You know, I don't believe in making these kinds of long-term plans. I just rather believe in following my curiosity and following my interests, you know, trying to create enough space in my life that I can actually have time for that curiosity and yeah. have enough silence and, and moments of pause so I can pay attention to them, you know, and entrepreneurship and life are a scavenger hunt. Yeah. And that's the joy of it also. Right. You never know what it's, what it's going to bring. And then we can all be proud. I, I hope think, so. Yeah, but we, that's we, really we, true. We, we, should, we should learn to be prouder of ourselves because... Uh, we're quite harsh on ourselves. Yes, yeah. we are. But if you have the feeling I'm trying to become the best version of myself and, and you, you seek improvement, I think that's very closely related to feeling proud. If you feel I, I push as much as I can, I think, and maybe not everything works out as you want it, which is usually the case with entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. But if you chase that and have that mentality, I think then the proudness will also come because you can always say, I, I did it, I tried it, maybe I failed, but one day this is my favorite failure. And then it's the same with the podcast. I don't know where it's going to take me, but uh, it, it's good. It, it, I, I like to try and yeah, this is something that would make me feel proud that I say I, I, I have tried it. Yeah. But, e but even, even more than pride, I think what's really important is just acceptance You know, we are <laughs> who we are, yeah. you know, and we can want to change things. But at the end of the day, there are just certain things that we don't have control over. I mean, we can control the things we can control, but other things we can't fundamentally change who we are. So, you know, I think, you know, and maybe this is just somewhat Buddhist, but I mean, if yeah, I think I if we this. can just accept where we're at, I mean the good and the bad, you know, and, and, and the opportunities we have, but also even in, in the places that, that we're stuck, <laughs> you know, if we can try to, to not beat up on ourselves so much, you know, I mean, I, I don't necessarily think that that constant striving, you know, is, is necessarily healthy either. I think you need to also understand when you need to rest. Yeah. Do you have a mechanism in place where you can go a few steps back that you feel, okay, I'm, I'm now maybe losing the overview, I'm, I'm too much in the moment, I'm mm -hmm. too much micromanaging, I'm too focused on this, that yeah. you say I step out of it. Do, do you have a certain thing, maybe meditation or something in that <laughs> genre? Yeah, um, I think it's really healthy uh, to know when to step back. And I think that it really prevents me, it, it certainly has prevented me from having any kind of burnout. Uh, I think anyway, when people get demotivated, they get lazy. <laughs> eventually yeah um yeah. you know because uh yeah i mean and and i think that's okay <laughs> because yeah. i think if you start becoming less effective uh it, it's it's your body and your mind trying to tell you something <laughs> yeah and i that's think a signal you have to follow then you need to honor that <laughs> yeah 
you know, and, and basically at that point, I think you do need to take a step back. And, you know, I also have a rule with, um, when I used to work at, at jobs, at real jobs, I, I had a rule for myself and it was basically that I would be willing to give anything a shot for a year. You know, just to make sure that I could give it a fair chance, you know, and that I could sort of learn what I needed to learn there and, and try and give it my best shot. After that year, if I'm still not happy, then I'll leave. But you would <laughs> always commit for that year. Yeah. In my head. I, yeah. I wouldn't say that to the other party, but I, but yeah. in my head, yeah. I mean, that that's sort of the, the chance that I want to give it. So, I mean, I'd, I wouldn't indiscriminately hop around, <laughs> you know, either, because yeah. I think you also need to, you need a certain amount of trying, <laughs> you yeah. know, to really give things fair chances. And even if you're in the wrong place, I mean, it takes some time to learn lessons from that. Yeah. <laughs> but I also think though that, you know, after that year, if you're still not happy, you, you need to know when to step back and you need to know when to seek change. You yeah. need to know when to say no. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is very true. I, I love that example you gave about saving the nose in, 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 in an email box. I think that's uh, mm -hmm. that's very smart. In general, I, I really learned a lot at, uh, during today's episode. I I really want to wanna thank you because uh, this was very, very inspiring. Is there maybe a last statement that you want to share with the listeners? And I have also one last question, but I will come back <laughs> to that later. But uh, is, is there something you, yeah, you want to share or where people can find you or how can they apply? Uh, and, sure. and make a change and a difference together. Yeah. So uh, if anything that I said triggers you, I mean, feel free to get in touch, right? I mean, um, first of all, I am on LinkedIn. <laughs> so feel free to connect with me. Feel free also to send me a message. I uh, generally respond. Uh, I try to be friendly and I'm usually happy to set up calls to talk with you. So uh, anyway, uh, anyone who's interested can reach out. As for nonprofit ventures, um, you know, we run a cohort uh, once a year. Uh, unfortunately, our current cohort uh, for Q1 2022 is just about full now. So uh, okay. we're going to be closing the call for applications any day now. Uh, however, that being said, we also organize other events and workshops and uh, we give a lot of trainings and presentations. Um, if there is a need, you know, I'll, if somebody needs help, contact me. If you are a startup founder and uh, you, you know, you, you just need some advice and tips, I can make time for you. You know, uh, anyway, I'm just trying to gather the, you know, the community, you know, if, if you don't get into this year's program, there's always next year's. <laughs> I'm anyway trying to develop things out uh, into making the, uh, the program more inclusive and being able to uh, support more people because it guts me that I can't accept everyone into the program. Yeah. I hate competition. I hate, you know, forcing people to have to, how can you judge? How can you compare if you have different social entrepreneurs who want to, all of them want to do great things, Yeah, you know? And, and the fact, I mean, I do try to restrict the size of the program just to keep things personal because uh, too many people, you lose that personal interaction, but you can't compare, you know, which is why, you know, moving forward, I want to try and move towards more inclusive programs where we can get this information to everyone who wants it. I'm inspired by how, uh, for example, Y Combinator set things up with their startup school. I like how they have, uh, you know, a uh, 
constantly running program, you yeah. know, based on videos and, and peer groups. I would like to see moving forward uh, if I can evolve, you know, some kind of a yeah. uh, structure also into non nonprofit ventures. Because I believe that anyone. Name. And it's very clear what you do. Same with cybersecurity talks almost, but it, yeah. the name says it. And then that's, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I really want this information to be accessible uh, to anyone who needs it. I, I think this is going to be a, a big thing in the, the years ahead of you. I hope so. <laughs> okay, great. One last question. And okay. this is more to spark my interest. Mm -hmm. What would you advise young entrepreneurs if you can give one advice? My advice would have three parts. Please. One, you don't need VCs. Two, you don't need exponential growth. Question whether or not growth is actually <laughs> what you need. Yeah. And three, you don't need to exit your company. Maybe instead you should think about building something for the long term. I love that. Thank you so much, Melanie. This is really a pleasure. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Cybersecurity Talks. We hope you've enjoyed this episode with the latest trends, war stories, and exciting career anecdotes. If you enjoyed the show, please review this podcast on your favorite podcast app. Also, could you do me one small favor? Could you please share this podcast with one friend that you think would like this show just as much as you do? Thank you. And for all further information, please go to csrecruitment.nl slash talks and subscribe to this podcast. We will be back with another exciting episode in just two weeks. So see you next time and stay safe.